Today comes from Mark, the 12th chapter, starting in verse 28. Hear these words. One of the legal experts heard their disputes and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The legal expert said to him, well said, teacher. You have truthfully said that God is one and there is no other besides him. And to love God with all of one's heart, a full understanding, and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, you aren't far from God's kingdom. After that, no one dared to ask any more questions. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Humans make religion, encountering the divine, increasingly complex. The legal experts, the scribes in Jesus' day, counted 613 commands in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 613 different laws that a Jewish person was supposed to keep in order to be holy. 613 ways to feel self-righteous. 613 ways to feel like you're failing. That's pretty complex. And that was just in the Torah. Jewish scholarship developed an entire tradition called the Midrash, where case laws were debated and interpretations of them were disputed. It got even more complex. And it's not the Jewish tradition alone that grew complex over time. In America alone, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of Protestant Christian denominations and traditions. Let's just take one look at Methodism. The Methodist Episcopal Church that began in this country before its birth, spawned then both the Methodist Episcopal Church North and South, which spawned black church traditions of the African Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal Zion, and Christian Methodist Episcopal traditions. A holiness tradition rose up within Methodism in the middle to late 1800s, which led to the eventual development of the Wesleyan, Nazarene, and Free Methodist traditions. Eventually, the North and South of the Methodist Episcopal Church came together, Then they unified with the Evangelical Church and the United Brethren, who were both German traditions, to form the United Methodist Church. This doesn't even speak, then, of how the Pentecostal movement that that happened on Azusa Street in the early 1900s grew up out of the holiness movement from the Wesleyans and Free Methodists and the Nazarenes. So after mentioning 12 specific denominations and new families of denominations that were birthed just within our tradition, just within our country, we can be too accused of being a little bit complex. I'm not going to ask you for a test of all of those denominations I just rattled off. I did it fast for a point. Many of you listening or watching right now have been asked, or have you have often asked, what's the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist? 
a Methodist and a Catholic, a Methodist and a Lutheran, a Methodist and a non-denominational, a Methodist and a Pentecostal. And from a certain standpoint, the fact that we have to ask this question is sad. We've gotten so good at narrowly defining ourselves that we've made the entire landscape of following Jesus quite complex. In this complex religious environment, the legal expert's question makes perfect sense. Which commandment is the most important one of all, Jesus? This was a common thread of conversation amongst the Jewish scholars at the time. They understood that 613 laws was an awful lot. But they also saw that there were these unifying threads in and through many of these laws. Unlike the scribes who had previously been questioning Jesus in this text, this one, this, this one doesn't seem to be holding his feet to the fire trying to trip Jesus up. This man seems genuine. What's your take on this conversation, Jesus? Which one of these laws is the most important? And the first answer that Jesus provides was a well-respected and well-known answer. Jesus begins with what Jewish people know as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jewish people pray this prayer multiple times per day. It is also what finishes the second time that the Ten Commandments appear in the Torah, this time in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and all your strength. Honestly, Jesus' answer here just proved that he was a good teacher in the tradition. You can picture the legal expert nodding along with his answer, mouthing the words to himself, agreeing with Jesus. But then, Jesus offers this additional word, like Jesus usually does. He says, the second is this. Now, the, the legal expert, he asked for one command, right? And Jesus says, well, the second is this, right? You will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Jesus connects the commandment to love God, really an extension of the first two of the Ten Commandments, to this commandment from Leviticus 19, that is found amidst all sorts of other laws about how the community was supposed to live together. And this is critical. Jesus says this and essentially drops the mic. That's it. That's the essence of the law. All 613 of the laws, all of the Midrash, all of the years of rabbinical school, love God with everything you are and love your neighbor. Maybe the Beatles had it right. Or at least they were riffing on Jesus when they sang over and over, all you need is love. The thing is, none of us can rightly love God. We are always responding to God's first movement of love towards us. A.W. Tozer prays about this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, when he says this, If nothing in us can win thy love, nothing in the universe can prevent thee from loving us. Thy love is uncaused and undeserved. The greatest commandment to love God is possible because of God's first love for us, we rightfully commit all of ourselves, our heart, mind, soul, and strength to God then in worship. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. We have all heard this verse before. We might have memorized it at some point when we were children. God is love. But it sounds sentimental or kind of Beatles-esque when it's not in context. John Wesley described love as the central characteristic of God. 
For Wesley, love defines all of the other attributes of God. So God is just and holy and righteous, all in light of God's love. Above all other descriptors, then, God is love. The whole of 1 John 4, 8 reads, The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the challenge of Jesus' answer to the scribe. You know about loving God. You do the right things in following all of the laws, making the right sacrifices, staying away from the wrong clothing fibers or foods. That is an outward display of your devotion to God. But how do you really show love, Jesus is saying? Well, you love your neighbor. By connecting these two love commandments into one, Jesus is telling us what we know to be true. Genuine faith in God is characterized by genuine love for others. So the legal expert can respond to him, you're right, Jesus. Loving God and loving neighbor is more important than burnt offerings or sacrifices. I've always looked over that part when the scribe responds back to him. But this is a huge understanding that he's offering because in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already talked about the destruction of the temple. And now he is essentially talking about the entire sacrificial system. It is no longer necessary because what really matters is the concrete action of loving God displayed through loving others. Since the legal expert seems to genuinely understand Jesus and accept his answer, Jesus tells him, you aren't far from God's kingdom. The entire gospel has been about how the kingdom is near. It is at hand. Now Jesus is telling this legal expert, this Jewish scholar who, used to, who was used to being on the inside, that he's getting awfully close to it. And here's what I wonder. Did the legal expert just get it in his head? Did he understand the commands intellectually that Jesus was talking about? But it did not yet translate to his heart. Have you received the love of God in your heart? Has God's love moved in and through you so that it spills out, overflowing from you to your neighbor? You see, this movement towards God's kingdom is not complex. It's actually quite simple. Jesus has said that you need to be more like a child to get in. And the longer that I'm alive and the further that I'm removed from my complex ministry training, the more I gravitate towards the simplicity of the love of God. It's like I had to make it complex first. Had to have painstaking theological debates with people. Try to learn Hebrew and Greek somehow. All to come back to the fact that God is love. The saints, living and dead, understand the beautiful simplicity of God's love. My first theology professor taught me a lot. And in one of our first classes in college, he talked about the difference between dogma and doctrine. Dogmas are those unchangeable truths that we hold. And doctrines are positions that we hold, but they are not the essential things. He promised us that as we got older, our list of things we held to be dogmas would grow smaller and smaller, but those things we hold as dogma would be near and dear to our hearts. 
dogmas are the types of things that we would die for. Jesus is telling us that in God's kingdom, the thing worth staking your life on is loving God and loving your neighbor. The saints in our lives, both living and dead, often have these simple mantras that display what is the essence of life and of following Jesus to them. I remember one of our saints here at Macedonia who died a few years back often used the same line that Robert Schuller used on his weekly broadcast when she would tell me as I was leaving visiting her, God loves you and so do I. As simple as that is, was she not expressing Jesus' command? My grandmother lets me know every time that I talk to her that I'm praying for you every day. That is beyond encouraging. It's not just someone saying, I'll pray for you. It's every day when I talk to God, I talk to God about you. That is loving your neighbor. What does a saint in your life say or has said that perfectly displays the love of God? For these saints are not only near God's kingdom, they're in it. They are walking in the way that leads to life. They don't just know about this way of Jesus in their heads. They live the way of Jesus with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I guarantee you that none of them has very complex theological views that you remember. The saints know and have experienced this deep and abiding love of God. A.W. Tozer says it this way, The Lord takes peculiar pleasure in his saints. Many think of God as far removed gloomy and mightily displeased with everything, gazing down in a mood of fixed apathy upon a world in which he has long ago lost interest. But this is to think erroneously. Now in Christ, all believing souls are objects of God's delight. In Christ, all believing souls are objects of God's delight. Every year, I care less about the complexity of faith. Instead, I find the most beautiful and profound truths are the most simple. It's like we have to move through the complexity to arrive once again at childlike faith. I invite you to consider the wonderful depth of God's love for you today and how you might respond with heart, soul, mind, and strength made real by how you love those around you. As you consider God's love and how you might respond, I invite you to hear these words of the hymn I'm going to sing called The Love of God. I invite you to hear these these precious words.
that we might know your love for us. God, that you might train us and make us into people who respond deeply to that love. And God, who respond in a deep love and abiding care for our neighbor, we pray. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.